Amen. Well, thank you for being here today. We're going to get right into our message time here in just a moment. We are in Mark chapter 1 as we uh, began a new journey through the Gospel of Mark last week. We began that journey by focusing on the very first verse of Mark's manuscript. And we established the importance of being mission-focused. You might remember that we asked ourselves this question, are we more like a cruise ship or an aircraft carrier? Are we sailing through life on a pleasure cruise? Or are we part of a crew determined to carry out a specific purpose and mission? Well, today we're going to shift our focus from this broad overview of the gospel to focus on two individuals, John and Jesus. Now, they were both cousins, and they had great birth stories, but they certainly were not equal. And I was thinking, can you just imagine the conversation that must have taken place maybe when these two moms of John and Jesus got together? Maybe... uh, Mary says to Elizabeth, oh, Elizabeth, how's your boy doing? And maybe Elizabeth responded, oh, you know, it's a little odd. He's lived out in the desert apart from us, and, and he dresses strangely, and he has a really unappetizing diet. And then she might say to, to Mary, oh, Mary, what, how's your boy doing? And Mary would say, oh, you know, he's perfect. And that would kind of just end the conversation right there, wouldn't it? Well, today we're going to talk about I am second. You see, John was all about being second to the Savior. And he loved to point to the faith of of Jesus and how others could find faith in the Messiah, who was the perfect Son of God. And so we're going to look at uh, the first few verses in John chapter 1 today, verses 2 through 8, we're going to focus on John, and then in verses 9 through 11, we're going to focus on Jesus himself. And so let's listen as the word of God is read. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Yum. And he preached, saying, After he comes, he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie, I have baptized you with water but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Matt. Well, from the text, I want us to see three distinct roles that John was called to. So we're going to take a look at those. And the first role that John was called to was to be the preparer. John the preparer. His first job was to prepare the way for Jesus. And in Mark, uh, verse 2 of our text today, Mark tells us that Isaiah predicted exactly what John would do. That phrase, it is written. That's written in the, in the present tense, indicating there's a, a continuous result as, John, uh, as Mark was writing about John in, in the contemporary uh, sense. And so what followed then is a combined quote from Malachi and from Isaiah chapter 40 when it says, Behold, I send you a messenger before your face 
who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And so John is God's messenger sent to come before your face. That literally means in front of your eyes. And so even though John was ministering out in the wilderness, far away from the cities and the villages, he was highly visible before many people. He was in front of them before their eyes. And then twice Mark tells us that John came to prepare the way. You know, in ancient times, when a king would travel somewhere, his advance team would go on ahead to make sure the roads were passable. They would prepare the way, and that meant that they were making sure the roads were level to reduce the twists and turns. They functioned a lot like perhaps we would call them civil engineers today, fixing the highways and even constructing bridges so that the king would have no delay when he came through that area on his journey. You know, the other day as I was preparing the message, I looked out my office window just out here into the parking lot and I saw a woman out in the far part of the parking lot and it looked like she had a tree branch and she was just kind of waving it over the ground. And I thought, that's kind of odd. And I watched for a minute and then finally I thought, I'm going to walk out there and see what she's doing. And so as I got closer, I, I realized she was sweeping the pavement with this branch. There had been a bunch of broken glass there. Apparently somebody had driven through our parking lot and thrown out a few bottles and they'd shattered there. And this woman was walking through with her dog and she saw that glass and so she took the time to find a branch and to try to sweep it up. She was preparing the way for you today so that you could walk here or drive through our parking lot without getting cut by glass. And as I was thinking about that, you know, John the Baptist was like that. He didn't want anything in the way of people coming to the one who is the way and the truth and the life. And so another role of the forerunner, the one that would prepare, is that they would also announce to the people that the king was coming so that the people would be ready And then it says that John was out in the wilderness, the wilderness, that dry, desolate area, barren, chalky soil, pebbles and broken stones and rocks. And so I was thinking about that. I thought, what a great metaphor for the people of the world, people with broken hearts, people with dry spirits, maybe like you and like me at one time. And John's way was to prepare those hard-hearted people so that they would be ready to receive Jesus as the soon and coming king. And so John was the preparer. He prepared the way, and next we see that he also proclaimed. John the proclaimer. In verse 4, it says that John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The word baptize is an ancient word which literally means to dip or to plunge. At that time, the Jewish people would use water for a variety of different religious rituals of washing and purification before worship. They even had areas, uh, kind of bathtubs, outdoor bathtubs called mikvahs where they would practice this washing. And, and, uh, but then the, the rite of baptism, the rite of baptism, whole body immersion, that was reserved for Gentiles 
who made a choice to convert and to come into Judaism. And it's interesting to me that these Israelites had to go out into the wilderness to find John and to be baptized. And I just wonder if that reminded them of their history, their history of their ancestors who wandered in that barren wilderness for 40 years due to their own disobedience. Perhaps that was part of their thinking as they came out to hear this proclaimer, John the Baptist. And there were two primary parts, two points to John's proclamation. And the first is this, the point of repentance from sin. That word repentance is so important. It means a change of mind that results in a change of action. To repent means to be going in one direction and then to turn around and to go in an entirely different direction. As Jesus followers, we should never live our lives like Jesus is merely just an add-on for us. Instead, you see, following Jesus requires that 180-degree turn in our life, a radical change of direction. And that's what John was doing. He was calling for marginal, low-committal Jews to radically change their allegiance to God as he prepared and proclaimed. And then second, John was also proclaiming remission or forgiveness of sins. The word forgiveness means to be released, to have your sins remitted, erased, taken away as if they had never happened. Later on, later on after the resurrection of Jesus, the apostle Peter in his preaching put repentance and remission or forgiveness of sins together when he proclaimed to his fellow Israelites in Acts 3.19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, erased, taken away. In verse five, we learn that John was baptizing multitudes of people. It says all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan. Large groups of people from the surrounding cities and villages were traveling out into the desert to hear John's proclamation. That phrase, they were going out to him, means that there was a continuous, steady stream of people coming. Can you imagine walking 20 miles? That's the, that's the distance between Jerusalem and the area of the Jordan where John was baptizing people. 20 miles. Would you walk 20 miles through the desert to be baptized? That's what these people were doing. They came to the Jordan River, and we think of the Jordan River as a a beautiful, wonderful river, but it's, it's really not. It's not a mighty river like the Mississippi or even like our own, the Mackenzie River or the Willamette. It's more like what we would call here in Oregon a stream. The Jordan, at its very deepest part, and this is a, a, in, in rare places, it's, uh, the very deepest it is is 10 feet deep. And in the one place at its widest, it's only about 80 feet wide, and that's in flood season. So it wasn't this beautiful, rushing river with clean, fresh water. It was muddy. It wasn't very pretty. And yet, the Jordan had spiritual significance for the Jewish people. It was associated with deliverance because Joshua had led the ancient Israelites across it 
as they headed into the promised land after those 40 years of wandering. And so the people went from the wilderness, which was associated with, with death and disobedience and hardship, and they went through the Jordan, which represented freedom, deliverance. And so now, here in our text, John treats those Jews like they were Gentiles, confronting them with their sins so that they would repent and experience forgiveness. And then look at that last phrase in verse five. It says, they came confessing, confessing their sins. And so John prepared people and he proclaimed repentance and forgiveness and he was also a preacher, John the preacher. And so as we think about his preaching, let's consider first his manner and then the message that he preached. First his manner. John was an unusual guy, wasn't he? In the way that he looked, in the what he ate. Take a look at his dress there. John came with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. His, 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 his clothing was as rough as his message. In the tradition of the great prophets like Elijah, John stepped out of the wilderness and he kind of looked like a wild man. And we know from, from Luke chapter one that, that John was a Nazarite. That meant that, that his hair and his beard had never been trimmed. And then camel's hair was rough and ugly. And then he had this leather belt that kind of just held it all together. And, you know, his clothing certainly wasn't fashionable. And then what about his meal? He ate locusts and wild honey. Well, that's exactly probably what somebody in the desert would eat. Bees made hives out in the rocks where honey could be gathered and locusts certainly would be plentiful. And, you know, by the way, if you're looking for a new diet, you might consider this JTB diet, right? <laughs> locusts with high protein and local honey, it's supposed to be a great antioxidant. I can already see that new breakfast cereal, honey nut grasshoppers. <laughs> the breakfast of prophets. Well, if John's manner was a bit unorthodox, then his message was revolutionary. His message, verse seven summarizes his sermon as he preached saying, after me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. And so as John called people to repentance, the heart of his message though was focused on the one to come, on Jesus. Compared to Christ, he was nothing. You know, in that culture, the taking off of the sandals, the washing of the feet, that was a job for the lowest slaves. Hebrew slaves were not even allowed to take on that task. And their roads were covered in dust and dirt. And in the cities, they often, the, the, the streets would often flow with raw sewage. And so your feet would be filthy. And John, John is saying that he is lower than the lowest servant, not worthy to do what even they do. In essence, he's saying, I am nothing, but he is everything. And friends, you and I will never see the worthiness of Jesus until we first understand our own unworthiness. We can't be saved until we settle the fact that we are sinners in need of salvation. 
And so John's humility is pretty incredible. It's pretty amazing because Jesus himself thought very highly of John. I want you to listen to these words that Jesus spoke in Luke chapter 7. When he was talking about John, he said, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And so actually, John didn't think of himself as second. He thought of himself as the littlest, the least, the last. And that then is what made him great. And now, and now when we choose to follow Jesus, we share in that greatness. Jesus says those in the kingdom are greater than John the Baptist. Wow. And then we get to verse 8, where it shows us that John understood. He understood that Christ was number one. He says, I've baptized you with water but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, John was using water to signify life change, but Jesus brings life change through an encounter with his Holy Spirit. Going under the water signified cleansing for those first century Jews, but people can really only have their sins washed away through the blood of Jesus. Water may clean the outside, but only the Holy Spirit can cleanse us inside. And so this is the work of John as he prepared people to receive the Messiah, as he proclaimed the the need for radical personal change, and as he preached about the greatness of the one who was coming. And so now let's look to Jesus and to his baptism the baptism of Jesus. I want you to notice that Jesus comes on the scene with no fanfare. There's no huge announcement. The Messiah is here. He simply shows up at the Jordan River to be baptized by John. Now, this is his first appearance since he was seen in the temple at age 12. And in verse 9 of our text, it says, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. One commentator suggests that Jesus walked about 60 miles to get to that location to be baptized. But have you ever wondered why? Why was Jesus baptized? He certainly didn't need to repent or to confess his sins, did he? In fact, in Matthew chapter 3, Matthew's recollection of this particular event of Jesus' baptism, we see that John tries to prevent Jesus from being baptized. He says to Jesus, "I, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? And in the next verse, Jesus gives his answer. Let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And so we see that, first of all, Jesus was baptized to identify with us. According to Scripture, our sins were put on him and his righteousness was put on us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes, for our sake, God made him to be sin." Who knew no sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was baptized to identify with us, to fulfill righteousness. Jesus did absolutely everything that his father required. In Hebrews chapter 2, we read this magnificent passage. It says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become merciful and a faithful high priest in the service of God to become the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people. And so Jesus becomes not only our priest, but he becomes our sacrifice. And he does that because he identifies with us. He identified with us in order that he might pay our sin bill. Well, then next we see that Jesus' baptism also shows that he was willing to accept the mission that was given by his father. Now, according to Jewish law, all priests are required to be consecrated, that is to be set apart for their priestly duties sometime around age 30. And that took part, there was a two-part process to that, a two-fold process of washing and then anointing. And so isn't it interesting that when Jesus comes around the age of 30 to see John at the Jordan River, when Jesus was washed or baptized in the Jordan, we see that the heavens were opened and that he was anointed with the Holy Spirit. This is shown in verse 10 of our text. It says, when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And that word that describes the heavens being torn open, it, it means to be, to, to be set asunder, to divide, to split. And Mark only uses that word one other place in the gospel, and that's in chapter 15 at the end of his book as he's describing the events surrounding the crucifixion of Jesus. And he talks about the thick woven curtain in the temple being torn from top to bottom at the very moment when Jesus died on the cross. And that curtain was there to keep people from getting too close it was the dividing place from the holy place and the holy of holies, the place where the glory of God resided. And amazingly, that was torn asunder, signifying that the way to Jesus, the way to God the Father is now open. We can come into the presence of God, opened by Jesus. Here's something really cool. In Isaiah chapter 64, in verse 1, th this verse was written about 700 years before the time of Jesus. And it contains the cry, a cry that was repeated over the centuries as Jewish people longed for God to come down. They were looking for God to come and rescue them. And so Isaiah, in his prophecy, writes, Oh, that you would rend the heavens tear the heavens open and come down. And then in Psalm 144, there's a similar passage. It says, bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that Christ has come down? 
for you and for me. And so the Israelites, they experienced 400 years of silence from God. There were no prophets. There were no miracles. There was no power on display. And by the way, that ended when an angel appeared to Zechariah, the priest, John the Baptist's father. And now, as Jesus comes to John for baptism, the heavens are ripped open, torn asunder as Jesus is baptized. And it says the Spirit descends on him like a dove. And so Jesus is baptized to identify with us, his followers. He was baptized to accept the mission that his father had for him. And then finally, Jesus' baptism introduces the Holy Spirit to those who would follow him. Now, the beginning of creation is when we are first introduced to the Spirit of God. In Genesis chapter 1, in verse 2, just the second verse in the front of your Bible, it says that the Spirit, the Spirit hovered, hovered over the face of the waters. And that word literally means to flutter, to flutter about. And the Jewish rabbis translated it this way, the Spirit of God fluttered above the face of the waters like a dove. Isn't that interesting? And now, seeing the dove descend at the baptism of Jesus, that certainly would have got the attention of those present that day. God was about to initiate a new creation. And so when the heavens rip open, you might expect that would be some huge cataclysmic event. The earth should shake and there should be loud noises and it should be scary. But instead, what happens? The Holy Spirit comes down like a dove. Think about doves. Doves are gentle birds. They descend delicately and rest in their place. A dove doesn't have talons like a bird of prey. A dove is gentle. A dove is loyal to its mate. Doves also mourn when death comes and feel distress at hurting. And so when the Holy Spirit comes down, we see another fulfillment of Scripture, this time from Isaiah 42, verse 1. Listen to this verse. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. I want you to see here in this, in this event, Jesus' baptism, that all three members of the Trinity are present at the baptism. We serve one God eternally existent in three persons. The Son physically comes up out of the water. The Holy Spirit descends visibly. And the Father speaks audibly in verse 11, where it says, a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. You see, when God speaks, it's all about the son. And he's not angry and he's not upset, but instead he is delighted. He's delighted. The father's actually quoting Isaiah 42, my chosen in whom my soul delights. 
Do you see the power and the majesty and the glory surrounding this event, Jesus' baptism? You see, Jesus was the audible, visible word who expressed the heart of the inaudible, invisible God. Jesus Christ is God's great visual aid. Origen was an early Christian scholar and theologian in the third century. And he had a, a great analogy to help us see this truth. He told of a village with a huge statue, so immense that you couldn't exactly see what that statue was supposed to represent. Finally, somebody had the idea of miniaturizing the statue so that one could see the person that the statue honored. Origen says that is what God did in his son. Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 1 that Christ is the self-miniaturization of God, if you will. He says that Christ is the visible icon or image of the invisible God. In Christ, we see God in a comprehensible and understandable way. In Christ, we have God's own personal and definitive visit to our world. So as we wrap this up, let's just ask, what does this mean for us, for you and for me? How can we apply this amazing passage to our lives here in the 21st century? Well, I want to offer you three ways this morning. First, first, repent and receive forgiveness, remission of your sins by being baptized. You see, heaven is open to you. The way has been made straight and clear. And if you've never done so, it's time. Time to repent and obey and identify with Jesus through baptism so that your sins can be forgiven and so that you can receive the gift of God's Holy Spirit. Here's a second way to apply this. Consciously and continually Tell yourself, I am second. I'm second. You see, John settled this because he was in submission to the Savior. And so I want to ask you this question this morning. Are you like John in this regard? Or are you more like our contemporary culture? Our culture which consistently influences us to put ourselves first. Seek the path that's right for you. Follow your heart. You do you. You see, friends, either Jesus is first or we are. It can't be both ways. And then finally, I want to challenge you to think of one person, one person that you can talk to this week in order to prepare the way for them to meet Jesus. Pray and seek God's guidance so that your conversation can be a way to remove obstacles, not to, to make obstacles, but to remove obstacles, to clear the path for that person to see Jesus more clearly. You see, our purpose in this world as followers of Jesus is to point people to Christ. We are part of that advanced team preparing the way 
of the Lord. Three challenges today. If you've never done so, be baptized. Consciously tell yourself, I'm second. And third, think about, pray about who you can help to prepare the way for Jesus. Let's go to the Lord together. Father God, we ask your blessing on our week ahead. Father, as we grapple with who we are in your sight, Father, help us to choose the way of humility, to choose to be second. Father, help us to flee the pride and the sinful ways of life that so easily overcome us. And Father, help us to walk on the path that Jesus has set for us. Father, we thank you that your Holy Spirit helps us strengthens us, convicts us, and enables us to do what we cannot do ourselves. Thank you, Father, for the hope we have because of our Savior, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, just now we're going to celebrate communion together. The Lord's Supper helps us to look back, as we've just done, to Jesus the time that he walked in this world, the sacrifice that he made on our behalf. But the communion time is also a time to look ahead and to think about the fact that Jesus is coming again. And he's going to take those who belong to him with him. And so we look back and we look ahead. And so let's do that together today as we share in the communion time. During communion time, it's an appropriate time for you to reflect on what Jesus has done and on the promises he makes for you. I also want to just say this, that this would be an appropriate time to seek prayer from others. And so some of our elders are going to be back in the left corner there under the prayer sign, and they're going to be there as we just share communion together. I encourage you to take communion and then maybe go back and visit with one of our elders, one of their spouses, so that they might pray for you. Maybe you have a spiritual need. Maybe you have a a need to be baptized. Or maybe, maybe you just need guidance from the Lord. It would be their great privilege to pray for you today as we spend time quietly sharing in the communion. As always, there are the four communion stations, two here at the front, two at the back, and we invite you to just make your way to one that's easily accessible to you. If you have trouble getting around, just raise your hand. We have some folks that would bring communion to you. May God bless you today in a rich and a powerful way as we reflect on the life and the ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus.